Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Warning. The Josh Hammer Show is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Paving a path forward for the new right. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. Is there any more sacrosanct American ideal than free speech? Really, is there? It's that and religious liberty. Those are the big two. Those, above all, are the two reasons that the Bill of Rights was drafted in 1791. Those are the protections that begin the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. So it is very fitting that it was on July 4th. It was last week on July 4th of all dates that a judge down in Louisiana in a case called Missouri versus Biden that I have been following since the get-go over a year ago now, vindicated, vindicated the free speech rights of those who oppose uniparty ruling class regime orthodoxy when it comes to COVID-19 and lots of other stuff. Missouri versus Biden is a huge deal. It has gotten lost in the shuffle a little bit because of the Supreme Court term that just ended. Folks who are paying attention to the legal issues, the constitutional issues have properly, properly been very focused on affirmative action and all the other cases that we broke down for you on a recent episode. But this one has slipped under the radar a little bit, perhaps because it is not actually a Supreme Court case, at least yet. But what happened in Missouri versus Biden? This was a lawsuit jointly filed by the states of Louisiana and Missouri. The attorney general in in Louisiana is Jeff Landry. He is quite good at his job, if I may say so. And at the time, his counterpart in Missouri was Eric Schmidt. Eric Schmidt has been promoted of sorts. He's now the junior U.S. senator from Missouri. At the time, he was the attorney general. And Missouri and Louisiana launched this suit over a year ago now, alleging that the Biden administration was working hand-in-hand with the technologists, with the big tech companies, with Facebook, with Google, YouTube, Twitter, and all of that, to suppress COVID-19 quote-unquote disinformation or quote-unquote misinformation during the course of the pandemic and perhaps even afterwards, after even the Biden administration itself conceded that this was no longer a national emergency. And I recall it was last August, so just under a year ago, when during the course of discovery, discovery obviously is a time when we see these 
Redacted emails, these text message exchanges, all this starts to come to the fore. Those of you who pay attention to these things saw a lot of that in the recent Fox News settlement with Dominion. We saw those texts from Tucker Carlson and so forth. So last August, the discovery in the Missouri versus Biden case, which again was Louisiana, Missouri, suing the Biden administration for their collusive suppression of your First Amendment rights when it comes to COVID-19 mis or disinformation, allegedly in particular. Wow, we saw a lot of discovery last August. We saw the emails indicating that folks at the Biden White House, the Biden Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, Health and Human Services, and perhaps others, were hosting weekly or bi-weekly phone calls with exactly who I just described. The higher-ups at Facebook or Meta, whatever we're calling it these days, Twitter, Google, and YouTube. They even went so far as to flag specific accounts, users, who the regime said was full of misinformation. These folks were peddling disinformation. They were a nuisance to your public health. And therefore, oh, kind Facebook, oh, kind YouTube, oh, kind Twitter, will you do us a solid and algorithmically suppress them? Or best case scenario, just nuke the damn thing. Get these accounts out of here. Because we, we, the Biden administration, we have a national health emergency in our hands. We are forcing masking in the Ubers, the taxis, the planes, the airports, the buses, the trains, you name it. And anyone casting aspersions or evincing skepticism as to the efficacy of the KN95 masks, well, that's not the kind of free speech that we want to protect here in the Biden administration. Most of this is public. You can go ahead and read it yourself. And for those of us who for years have been following the public sector's encroaching, dare I say insidious co-option of the quote-unquote private sector to do its dirty work, this is happening across all spheres of life. We had on Arthur Millick on this show recently to talk about Black Lives Matter, 82 plus billion dollars in corporate donations getting the Black Lives Matter agenda passed via corporate boardroom edicts. That which cannot be done via the political process. This has been one of the left's great achievements over the past, call it six, seven, eight years or so, has been taking these private actors, reeling them in real close, whispering in their ear, and using them as shock troops to accomplish that which they cannot do directly. And there is nowhere where this has more been the case than the big tech platforms. Now, I know, I know, Hunter Biden, you guys know the story by now, the laptop, October, New York Post suppression. But the point is that sordid affair which, per the polling, I, I genuinely might have tipped the scales of the election. But we're going to hold that aside for now. That's not, that's not our topic for today. The point is, that was just one example. 
That was just one example of how the intelligence community and the deep state and really, frankly, not even just the deep state, but the not deep state, the shallow state has been working hand in glove with these companies to peddle their agenda. Jen Psaki, who before the current idiot was the White House press secretary, not that Jen Psaki herself is not a bit of an idiot, but she was probably less of an idiot than the current one. But we all saw the same clip of her at the White House press secretary podium in July of 2021, around the same time that all of these emails that were shown via discovery that I just mentioned, around the same time that these emails took place. And Jen Psaki, standing there at the White House press podium, told the world, she announced to the world, she said, oh yeah, we're working with Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook to make sure that there's no misinformation out there about vaccines or masks. So many of us were waiting with bated breath to see what a federal judge would say when this case was finally brought to his court. And we got that answer. We got that answer on July 4th, where Judge Terry Dowdy, in a 155-page ruling, vindicated the First Amendment by putting a preliminary injunction In other words, telling the Biden administration, the White House, HHS, DHS, FBI, everyone who I just named earlier, by telling them that they are forbidden, they are precluded from communicating with the quote unquote private sector technologists. You can go ahead and check it out for yourself. It's 155 pages. The evidence is utterly, utterly damning. It's right there. The emails, the coronation, the collusion, it is all right there. In Judge Dowdy's own words, this is not yours truly speaking. This is a federal judge, for God's sake. In his own words, he wrote, quote, The United States government seems to have assumed a role similar to an Orwellian ministry of truth. He is speaking there, of course, about Orwell's novel, 1984. Unbelievably, the reaction from the Biden administration was to immediately appeal and to seek a stay of this preliminary injunction at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, the court that I clerked on, actually, about five years ago. Think about what that means. Think about what it means for the Biden administration to immediately sue this not even final ruling, it's just merely a preliminary injunction, hence the word preliminary. Think about what it means for them to be so aggrieved, so angered by saying, you can't collude with the tech companies to censor First Amendment protected speech. Think about what it means for them to be so angered at that, that they felt a compelling urge to appeal. What does that say about the priorities of the Biden administration? What does that say about the priorities of the modern Democratic Party that they have so taken for granted this broader co-opting of the technologists of the Silicon Valley dweebs, frankly, of corporate America in general, but especially in this case of those who police our contemporary town square, which happens on websites like YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. 
What does it say about the extent to which they have taken for granted their ability to police the town commons, the online commons, that they felt this need to appeal? Furthermore, what is so remarkable about this is that the administration conceded, they openly conceded that the speech that was at issue in this case, again, pertaining mostly to COVID-19, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, things like that, they openly conceded that this was First Amendment protected speech. Put another way, they openly concede that if you had said these things, if you had expressed skepticism about the mask, about the vaccines from a public sidewalk or from a federal courthouse or some other explicitly public governmental property, then the government could not censor you. That is your free speech First Amendment right. They concede that. But they merely say that because these quote-unquote private actors were doing it, it's kosher. Pay no attention, of course, to the fact that they were talking every two weeks, that they were openly threatening this from the White House podium and whatnot here. Here's the problem. Here's the problem as Philip Hamburger, a brilliant legal scholar who was one of the lawyers in this case, not for the states of Missouri and Louisiana, but for individual plaintiffs who were censored and so forth. He and others have made this point, which I find utterly damning to the government's position. Let's go back to the text. The text of the First Amendment, that is. Quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Let's focus right there. Quote, abridging the freedom of speech. So the text with kind of an ellipsis dot 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 in the middle reads, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Abridging. But what does the word abridge mean? It just means to lessen, to trim around the sails, to curtail, to crop it diminish. That's all that has to happen for a First Amendment constitutional violation here. The argument does not have to be that Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and so forth have suddenly overnight literally become government entities that they are no longer listed on the various stock exchanges and so forth. I guess the case of Twitter, it's, it's Elon Musk, but you get it. That is not the threshold The threshold is whether the government is involved in abridging the freedom of speech. And in what universe is a White House, an administration, that is holding weekly or bi-weekly phone calls, is sending all sorts of godforsaken emails that these idiots had to have known would have made them liable for either FOIA or outright discovery in litigation like this? In what world... Is this not abridging what they openly concede is your First Amendment protected speech? Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Josh Hammer Show. Joe Biden landed in Vilnius, Lithuania earlier this week for the NATO summit. Lithuania is a strategic location for the NATO summit. Lithuania, of course, is a country that was torn asunder by multiple 20th century atrocities, including, of course, Soviet Russia and communism. And like many in NATO's eastern flank, Poland comes immediately to mind. That part of Europe, Lithuania and so forth, is quite hawkish when it comes to the conflict in Russia and Ukraine. And the issue that has been percolating now for about a week or two has been what stance President Biden in America, for that matter, will take at this summit in Eastern Europe when it comes to the question of whether Ukraine should be a part of NATO. So you have your usual bipartisan cabal of uber-interventionist globalist morons. People like Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, who on Friday tweeted, of course I will support Ukraine's membership in NATO. I will do whatever it takes. That's the same Lindsey Graham, of course, who was just over in Kiev within the past few weeks, who referred to America's probably around $150 billion at this point financial commitment to Ukraine as, and I'm paraphrasing here, is what Lindsey Graham said, the best investment the U.S. Senate has ever made. He really said something right along those lines. So you have these idiots of both parties Of course, the Democratic Party in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, this is the first war they have basically ever supported. Really amazing how the party of the Vietnam War protests has now become uber, uber interventionist, getting us ever closer to the brink of potential nuclear conflagration with the Russian Federation. Really remarkable to tell that story in and of itself. So we were waiting for a long time to see what Biden would say. And this past weekend, he teased his stance, which basically amounts to something of a kick the can down the road. That Ukraine to NATO is not a good idea right now, but that we will revisit it at a future summit. I'm not necessarily going to knock him for that. That is more or less the correct stance. I mean, I I would just take it off the table to begin with, but that's closer to correct than to being wrong. I mean, think for a second about the people who are actually advocating that the European Union and EU allies like the United States actually pave the path forward right now, right now, for Ukrainian membership into NATO. Think about what that entails. Article 5 of the NATO Charter is very clear that an attack on one is an attack on all. 
What this has always meant is that if Russia were to cross the boundary into Poland, Lithuania, or so forth, then the United States would be obligated, obligated, under treaty, to hop into the fray directly, not just indirectly via the shipment of munitions, payloads, good old greenbacks, U.S. dollars, things like that. In fact, one could argue, and I have argued at times, that the consistent dangling of possible ascension to NATO membership for Ukraine by American presidents and by liberal European powers is one of the reasons that we've found ourselves in a hot, active, and horrific shooting war with Russia for almost a year and a half now. It is not unreasonable for Ukraine to be something of a buffer zone, something of a neutral state. But that is a conversation, again, about a year from now. It is unfathomable to me that there are some people out there who are literally saying, get Ukraine into NATO now. The United States is the guarantor of NATO. I What, you guys think that it's the UK or Germany or, God forbid, France? Germany just got, finally, just announced, if I'm not mistaken, that they're going to hit 2% of GDP on military spending, which is what NATO explicitly calls for. This, by the way, was actually one of Donald Trump's underappreciated foreign policy achievements, that when he went to the NATO summits himself in the course of his presidency, he directly challenged the European powers. He said, you guys are not pulling your weight. And, you know, all the usual suspects, the, the Atlanticists, the transatlantic fetishists, were like, oh my God, how could you do that? How dare you say the quiet part out loud? Well, you know what? He actually was right to say that. He was right to say that. At what point does NATO become not our problem, or at least not our primary problem? We are operating in a geopolitical map right now where China is the first, second, third, and probably fourth and fifth biggest threats to the United States in and of itself. And oh, by the way, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are probably closer than ever. So if you want any chance, any chance whatsoever of possibly doing a reverse Nixon goes to China, a reverse Henry Kissinger, and possibly, not right now because we are in a freaking hot war, but possibly in the short to midterm, if you want any chance of peeling the Russian Federation somewhat, somewhat out of the talons of Beijing, to pull them away from the Chinese sphere of influence, out of the Belt and Road Initiative, all that stuff. If you want any chance of that, well, I suspect sending over cluster munitions, which is the latest idiotic bipartisan thing that the defense industrial complex has done, Things like that, things like continuing to flirt with NATO membership for Ukraine. I mean, I mean, just it makes you ask why. Why other than military industrial complex slush funds to appease the C-suite at Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, defense contractors like that? Why otherwise would you agree 
to this sort of policy. The explicit goal of NATO, which formed in the aftermath of World War II in the early onset of the Cold War, was to ultimately dismantle the Soviet Union. Last I checked, that happened 32 years ago. I was two years old. The Berlin Wall literally fell the year I was born, 1989. Now, I understand why the instinct for many is to see a hegemonic Russia, a Russia that has gone into Ukraine, has done all sorts of atrocities there. Putin's obviously a thug and all of that. We all know that by now. I understand the instinct of those who see that and say, oh my God, the best way to deter this in the future is just to sweep Ukraine into NATO. But at what point is the specific boundary in the Donbass between 50-50 ethnically split Russian-Ukrainian towns in the Donbass, Crimea, and so forth? And at what point, more generally speaking, is deterring Russia from getting its hands dirty into Eastern Europe just not America's foremost problem? You know, last year, the U.S. Senate took a vote on whether Sweden and Finland should be admitted to NATO. If I recall correctly, the vote in the U.S. Senate was 98 to 1. It was 97 to 1 or 98 to 1. I know that Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, and my former boss, actually, I know that he abstained or didn't vote yes or no, for that matter. I can't remember exactly how it broke down. The only senator who voted nay was Josh Hawley of Missouri. He was correct to do so. There is simply no need at this stage of the American Republic, again, where China is our first, second, third, fourth, and fifth biggest threats, where the strategic midterm plan should be to not alienate unnecessarily the world's largest nuclear arsenal, that is Russia, and to push them even further away into China's hands to form a massive, massive landmass there in Eurasia. Where all of that is true, I just do not understand those who are peddling Ukrainian membership for NATO right now. Now, I understand why you would want that. I totally get it. Obviously, if you're Vladimir Zelensky, for God's sake, you want Ukraine and NATO. If you are Matus Morawiecki, the conservative prime minister in Poland, you probably want Ukraine to be a part of NATO. If you're in Lithuania, you probably want Ukraine to be a part of NATO and so on and so on and so on. I get it. But from this country's perspective, being the ultimate military and financial guarantor of NATO, with the long-term problem of China and this emerging Russia-China alliance, I'm sorry, you are a moron. You are an actual moron if you want Ukrainian membership for NATO now. Are the people saying this ready to send their children to die to fight in this war? Because that's what would happen, guys. That's what would happen. We would be obligated under Article 5 of the NATO Charter to send our 18-year-old young men to go die in the Donbass. That's literally what would happen. So I just have no patience. I have no tolerance for this whatsoever. As we have repeatedly said on this show since the war broke out, Russia is obviously in the wrong for this invasion, but American policy, Jesus, like at this stage of the game, at this stage of the game, absolutely must, must be oriented towards giving both sides, both Vladimir Zelensky and Vladimir Putin, some sort of face-saving off-ramp. That 
is what actual American diplomacy in this part of the world, in this time, in this era, would look like. Not the open flirtations with Ukrainian membership in NATO. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The Josh Hammer Show. So there's been a recent deluge of headlines from Politico, Axios, kind of inside the Beltway, center-left publications like that, clamoring for Joe Biden to step aside. Not always in that explicit or direct of language, but just continuing to talk about how he is old, how he is out of touch, how he is this. There was an article recently that referred to Biden as old yeller. And the allegation here was that though Biden publicly puts on a very stoic face and he likes to whisper in public to kind of give off that grandfatherly impression. This article alleged that behind closed doors, he is actually a serial yeller and frankly sounds just like a bad guy. By the way, that is exactly the Joe Biden that I have always thought that Joe Biden was. I I have never for a second bought into this idea that it's just, oh, it's Uncle Joe. He's like, just like slap him on the back, you know, like it's like the drunk uncle at Thanksgiving dinner table. It's it's hard scrabble working class Joe from Scranton, Pennsylvania. I, I mean, what a load of you know what? What a load of crap. This is the man who in 1987, when President Ronald Reagan nominated D.C. Circuit Judge Bob Bork to the U.S. Supreme Court, Joe Biden was the Robin to the late Senator Ted Kennedy's Batman, when it came to the vicious, disgusting assault, scathing personal attack on Bob Bork. Ted Kennedy said that we'd be going back to the pre-Civil Rights Act era, segregated lunch counters, horrible stuff. Biden, who was very much a player already on the Senate Judiciary Committee, helped sink the Bork nominations which actually then launched the modern era of contentious Supreme Court nominations in general. In fact, what happened to Bob Bork in 1987 was so disgusting and so terrible that the word Bork was literally added to the dictionary as a verb, meaning to so humiliate and discredit and besmirch so as to sink someone's nomination or remove them from the public limelight or something like that. And then four years later, by the way, in 1991, when President George H.W. Bush nominated Clarence Thomas, also from the D.C. Circuit to the Supreme Court, 
Biden basically reprised the same role where he helped push the fallacious Anita Hill allegations. He did the same thing all over again. So this is not a good dude. And these recent articles talking about how he utterly berates and yells at his staff, which sounds like Kamala Harris does too, by the way. I mean, she has an extraordinarily leaky and disloyal staff, as we've seen from all these leaks over the past year, year and a half or so. And it sounds like she is just a total do-you-know-what behind closed doors. But these articles have been cropping up often enough. And I'm talking about like reliable progressives. So, you know, Maureen Dowd, the very progressive, very out there lefty New York Times columnist, had a piece recently saying, that's seven grandkids, Mr. President, reprimanding him for this Hunter Biden custody dispute in Arkansas and the fact that Joe Biden has not publicly addressed it or anything like that. So when you have your Pravda, when you have your media apologists, when you have your echo chamber start putting out headlines like this, that really should be a five alarm fire for the Biden White House and the Biden quote unquote campaign to the extent they campaign even exists. I read over the weekend, I think that they have literally 20 employees or something like that. So it's not much of a campaign right now. Looks like they're trying to do the old run from the basement in Delaware strategy, which of course worked to success tragically in 2020, the last time around. But these headlines are leading many to ask again, what is going on here? I mean, is there any chance that Joe Biden steps aside? What about Gavin Newsom, who is clearly running something of a shadow campaign for president out in California? He's literally running ads in Florida about how great California is and about how terrible Florida under Ron DeSantis is. The guy is doing town halls with Sean Hannity. He's he's really, really, really trying to establish himself as the next in line. And he's not the only one, of course. There are any number of other prominent Democrats. Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary who is horrible at his job, I might add. Absolutely horrific at his job. Folks like him, the vice president, Kamala Harris. There are many people clearly chomping at the bit in the event that Joe Biden does actually bow out. And this becomes something of like a parlor game. I mean, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with friends off air about this. Is Biden going to be the nominee? What's going to happen? Is he going to drop out? Is he this, that, that? I have been skeptical for a long time that Joe Biden is going to drop out. His period for doing so, his window for doing so, really was before he formally launched this admittedly very bare bones, extraordinarily thin campaign apparatus. If you think back to January, in the middle of January, We saw some folks in the deep state, some lawyers deep within the bowels of the DOJ, FBI, and so forth, who did show the world, reveal to the world, Biden's own classified document retention scandal. You know, people forget about that, but the timeline takes us back to right around the November election last fall, and Joe Biden knew that he had classified documents at the Chinese Communist Party Penn Center for Global Diplomacy, or whatever the heck the specific name is of that boondoggle that the Biden name is on top of there in D.C. We remember that Joe Biden had documents in his garage in Wellington, Delaware, next to the Corvette or whatever the heck it was. The time for Joe Biden to drop out of the presidential campaign was after that and before, before the formal launch of the campaign around April or so. At this point, I personally find it hard to believe that Joe Biden is going to drop out unless the dude is literally hospitalized, something like that. 
and you never know. I mean, like he obviously is in very bad health. He obviously is losing his mental faculties. He's slipping. He's falling. He's doing this. I mean, I mean, Jesus Christ. You guys see like the, the video this past weekend of Joe Biden shirtless in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. I mean, I've been to funerals and wakes where the corpse looks healthier than that. Is what, I guess I'll leave it at that. So, look, something could happen. Something clearly could happen. But short of that, it is difficult for me to foresee how anyone else could be the nominee at this particular stage. One other thing that I think is worth bearing in mind here that is also kind of going underappreciated. So a statistician and political analyst named David Byler, who works for The Washington Post, he had a piece recently. And, you know, you know Dylan Byers, he's, this is not a conservative guy or anything. He had a piece also expressing frustration with those who were yelling at the top of their lungs that Biden has to step aside for the good of the Democratic Party so that the evil orange man, Donald Trump, can be defeated, blah, blah, blah. And he was casting skepticism on that as a basic polling matter. So, you know, it's interesting. A lot of people look at the broader political realignment that has been happening in this country for a while now, but at least in the aftermath of the 2012 presidential election and really starting in earnest with the 2016 presidential election. And I speak here, of course, that the white working class has really almost completed its shift, or so it seems, from being the one-time bedrock of the FDR-LBJ Democratic Party to being kind of the heart and soul of the new Republican Party. But that analysis is actually overstated statistically, at least at present. The Democratic Party's single largest demographic subgroup is actually non-college-educated white voters. 32%, if I remember the number correctly. 32%. That is a larger percentage of the Democratic Party's voting base than black voters, than PhDs, whatever. The other wokesters and hucksters who comprise the Democrats' coalition. Now, that's changing. That definitely has been changing, and those trend lines will only continue to change. But the, the reason that that is important is because the Democrats cannot be seen, for all of Joe Biden's myriad flaws, they cannot be seen as forcing him aside when he still purports to have that connection, no matter how BS or thin or manufactured it is, to the white working class. Joe Biden who I don't think particularly means it when he says it, but he's still the only guy in the modern Democratic Party who can actually get up there and at least mouth the words talking about blue-collar jobs, bringing manufacturing home, industrialization, things like that. Part of that is because he is from a different era, no doubt about that. He is a throwback in some ways to a bygone era. I mean, the dude first was elected to Congress in 1972. Unbelievable. But, you know, if you think that Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris could pull that off, could simultaneously maintain the Democratic Party's attraction with the intersectional rainbow wokesters and not so piss off that 32% of non-college educated white vote support so as to hand the election to Donald Trump, well, I don't think you're thinking clearly. Now, whether the Democrats dump Biden immediately after he is reelected, if, God forbid, he is reelected, that's an entirely different calculation. 
That to me is much more easily foreseeable for any number of reasons. They will not piss off the 30% of non-college educated white voters. He'll be even older, more frail, more vulnerable, and so forth. But if the question is right now, looking at all these new flurry of headlines about how Biden is terrible and we all know he's terrible, I do find it hard to believe that short of hospitalization or God forbid death or anything like that, that he actually would voluntarily step aside. But we shall see. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. Which is like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.